EU Confidential gets started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Fuels Europe. What's the difference between conventional fuels and low-carbon fuels? Low-carbon fuels are not produced with petroleum-based feedstock. These fuels are climate neutral and will contribute to enabling climate neutrality in EU transport. Visit cleanfuelsforall.eu. Sehr geehrter Herr Bundeskanzler, lieber Olaf Scholz, ich weiß aus eigenem Erleben, dass es ein bewegender Moment ist, in dieses Amt gewählt zu werden. Ich wünsche Ihnen von Herzen alles Gute bei dieser Arbeit und immer eine glückliche Hand für unser Land. And there she goes, one last time. And now it's over to Olaf. That was, of course, Angela Merkel bowing out after 16 years as German Chancellor and handing over to Olaf Scholz, who was elected by the Bundestag as her successor on Wednesday. Ich finde, es ist etwas ganz Besonderes, Bundeskanzler dieser Republik zu sein. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. It's a historic week for Germany and for Europe as the Merkel era ends and a new one begins. So we have a Germany-focused episode for you. You'll hear from a top team of political journalists on what we can expect from the new coalition of Social Democrats, Greens and Liberals. We'll also reflect a little more on Angela Merkel's legacy. And later in the podcast, Sprechen Sie Denglisch. You'll hear from an author about the impact of English increasingly used and abused by German politicians and by German society more broadly. Also, we'll give you the inside scoop on a big political event this week, our Political 28 ranking of the most powerful people in Europe. But first, let's check in with our chief Europe correspondent in Berlin, Matt Karnichnik. How are you doing, Matt? I'm good, thank you. Been in Berlin here, avoiding the inauguration today. Yeah, you didn't feel, uh, you didn't seem to me from Twitter to be full of uh, joy with the new era. You know, you seem to be determined to give those Germans a hard time for not having more of a ceremony around all of this. Well, it reminded me a bit of the process I go through when I, I need to uh, get anything from a German administrative office. You have to mm. go around town, get a bunch of stamps on various forms. And <laughs> so I, I felt Schultz's pain today because he seemed to be just carting around town, going from one place to the next, uh, waiting yeah. for these very bureaucratic processes to kind of play through. Well, in some ways, it's very egalitarian, right? It's just a bit like having to change your name on a driving license or something, becoming a chancellor of Germany. So it started off in the parliament where he was elected chancellor. Mit Ja haben gestimmt 395 Abgeordnete. Then he went over to the president's palace where he got a piece of paper that says he's the chancellor. Im Namen der Bundesrepublik Deutschland ernenne ich aufgrund des Artikels 63 Absatz 2 Satz 2 des Grundgesetzes für die Bundesrepublik Deutschland Herrn Olaf Scholz zum Bundeskanzler. Then he took that piece of paper back to the Bundestag, was sworn in by the president of the Bundestag. Ich schwöre, dass ich meine Kraft dem Wohle des deutschen Volkes widmen. Then took his cabinet members to the president's place where they all got their piece of paper and we heard a speech from the president. Then they went back and uh, then went on about their business 
of um, taking over their ministries. And we had these handover ceremonies, including one with Olaf Scholz in the chancellery, taking over from Angela Merkel. Ich möchte mich sehr für Ihre Arbeit in den letzten 16 Jahren bedanken. Ich glaube, dass man hier sehr genau und sehr präzise sagen kann, das war eine große Zeit, in der Sie Kanzlerin dieses Landes waren und Sie haben auch Großartiges bewegt. But the problem with that whole process is, I think, for an outsider's eyes, is that it's just so boring. I mean, you know, there's no... It's very flat, right? I mean, it's like this big right. moment, and this is especially historic. This is 16 years, a change of power after 16 years, but it just feels very flat. Exactly. It's not at all celebratory, and there's just, there's no kind of magic moment, which... In a way, unfortunately, it's it's very typical for the German Republic, which is, of course, very reliable, but unfortunately dry as dust. Right. Well, um, and Germans might say, you know, better that we keep it low-key, you know, with reference to our history. So let's get to a bit of the substance, the foreign policy stuff. You know, if you're looking in, maybe you're only now just tuning in from the rest of the world saying, oh, Angela Merkel's gone, you guys come in. What's going to change? Maybe let's start with transatlantic relationships. What will uh, Washington be looking for from this new government? And what's it likely to get? Well, I think the first thing that they're going to be looking for is some sign that Berlin is going to get behind the U.S. when it comes to China policy. Uh, this was a priority for the Biden administration already under Merkel. And I think that she resisted really changing course here. And getting tougher, right? Basically getting tougher when it comes to relations with China. Absolutely. Because the, the, the U.S.-China relationship is very fraught at the moment. Uh, just this week, the U.S. said it was going to not attend the Winter Olympics in Beijing, effectively a diplomatic boycott. Right, said so that the diplomats wouldn't go, but the athletes will, right? So it's not quite... That's right. And in a first sign of what Schultz might be doing on this front that is not going to go down well in Washington, I suspect, he was asked on Tuesday of this week whether Germany would join the U.S. in this boycott. And he gave this very vague answer that basically made it sound like, no, they're not going to be uh, doing so. It was very Merkelian in a way. So I think there's going to be tension in the transatlantic relationship going forward if Germany doesn't do more to support the U.S. in its confrontation with China, which is difficult for Germany because China is, of course, its largest trading partner. Uh, the question is how long it will be able to kind of walk this line between trying to keep the U.S. happy and also not offending the Chinese too much in a way, especially that would damage its commercial interests there. Mm. So one early test uh, also for this government on the foreign policy front could also come with Ukraine. Obviously, there is a continuing concern about Russian troop uh, movements, about a Russian troop buildup uh, close to the Ukrainian border. Uh, once again, the United States is talking about sending a strong message to Russia. Certainly in terms of sanctions, there's no talk of a, of a military response. But again, that could put the new German government on the spot, right? In, in what way and how might they react? So the project Nord Stream 2, this gas pipeline linking Russia with Germany, has been completed, but it hasn't received full regulatory approval. So it has not gone into service yet, although that could happen quite quickly. And I think this crisis presents the Germans with a potentially very difficult decision because 
if Russia were to invade Ukraine, say, and cut the gas supplies that are currently flowing through Ukraine, Nord Stream 2 would present a very attractive fallback because Russia could then just run that gas that would normally go through Ukraine via Nord Stream 2. Of course, Germany would be under a lot of pressure from the U.S. in particular, but not just, also from European allies, to not do that. But at a time when gas prices are going through the roof, uh, this is going to be a very difficult decision if this comes to pass. So I think that Nord Stream 2 is going to remain an extremely uh, contentious foreign policy issue for Germany in its relations, both with the US and with a number of European allies, in particular Poland and other Eastern European countries. If we just talk about foreign policy more broadly, who do you think is really going to be running it? We've got used to the chancellery having a very strong role under Angela Merkel, basically directing foreign policy. And as you've written in the past, the foreign minister becoming something of an irrelevance. I am sure that Annalena Baerbock, the new Green foreign minister, does not want to settle for that kind of role. Do you think she'll be able to carve out her own niche there? Will there be a Green foreign policy or is it going to be run uh, very much from the Chancellery, from Olaf Scholz? Or where do you see the points of tension there if they where they might not agree? So I suspect that Schultz will take a page out of Merkel's book here and keep control of the key areas of foreign policy, such as the transatlantic relationship, the relationship with China, and big strategic questions such as Nord Stream 2. I think that Baerbock could still carve out her own niche on other fronts, but it's going to be difficult, I think, for somebody like Baerbock who doesn't have deep experience in foreign policy. This is her first time out as a minister. She's 40 years old. I think it's going to be uh, very challenging for her if Schultz intervenes and says, you know, he's going to take control of a certain portfolio or issue to resist that. There was a, a bit of a dust up on this issue today, in fact, with the head of the Social Democrats parliamentary group, Rolf Mützenich saying that it was clear that foreign policy would be steered out of the chancellery. And that drew an immediate response from the Greens reminding him of the coalition agreement. But I think the reality is, is that if Schultz wants to drive foreign policy, he's going to do so. OK, uh, we'll see how that goes. And we apologize to any 40 year olds or young people who may feel that they would be well-equipped already to take on a ministry and, and do that. but uh, I don't apologize. No apologies here. Yeah, you don't apologize. <laughs> I apologize. Well, I'm closer in age to those people, at least in spirit. Um, Matt, thanks very much. Thank you. Now let's tap into the expertise of some more political journalists to reflect on Germany's change of government. Soon after Schultz was sworn in, not so easy to see. A bunch of us held a live audio chat on Twitter. Here are some highlights from that conversation. Let's uh, now join Hans von der Burchardt, who covers the EU-Germany relationship, splits his time between Brussels and Berlin. Hans, let's focus on the European Union. Uh, obviously, Germany has an absolutely central role in pretty much everything the EU does. And Angela Merkel personally was very much at the centre of uh, EU policy making. What do you think are the priorities for this government when it comes to the relationship with the EU? And what do you think are its main challenges on that front? 
Yes, hello and a moin from my side. Um, it's an interesting question because we've seen uh, Olaf Scholz during his first press conference as the almost to become chancellor. And there he has stressed again how much he sees uh, the European Union as a core element of his new government's policy. So he has said really that Germany wants to um, bring the European Union forward, that all actions should be done in close coordination with the European Union. And uh, that is interesting in a way because we've uh, really heard and seen, of course, in all the coalition treaties and all the announcements of previous governments a lot, this uh, saying that, of course, Germany needs to act cl in close coordination with the European Union. But here I have the feeling that it's emphasized even a bit more. And that also has to do with the fact that uh, both the Greens and the liberal FDP party, so Schultz coalition partners, um, a social democrat, have a really strong history of being very pro-European and have also, uh, yeah, always put a foot down in the coalition agreement by uh, saying that Germany needs to, uh, for example, enforce uh, a stronger line on rule of law when it comes to dealing with um, Hungary and Poland. One of the things you've been doing a great job for us, uh, Hans, is um, finding out who are going to be the key people around Schultz, the people advising him on these issues. Who do you think will be kind of shaping his views, particularly when it comes to the EU and to foreign policy more generally? So what we see there is a lot of very close Scholz aides who have been with him at the finance ministry also made it over to the chancellery. That's uh, first of all uh, Wolfgang Schmidt, who has been his powerful right-hand man at the finance ministry, who uh, already knows him from back in Hamburg and uh, who will now be the head of the chancellery in the rank of minister and there, of course, uh, shape the whole government policy a lot, also relations with uh, Europe and um, uh, other international partners. He speaks Spanish, by the way, that might help in dealing with uh, Southern European or Latin American issues, perhaps. But then there's another uh, very important aide, and that's uh, Jörg Cookies, who is a former Goldman Sachs banker and uh, who joined uh, Olaf Scholz in the finance ministry as Europe and financial policy advisor back in 2018, and who has now been promoted to a dual role as both the Europe and economic and financial policy advisor in the chancery. That's really unheard because uh, previously, as long as I can at least think back, and definitely under Angela Merkel, these two positions were always held by two different advisors. And of course, a, a hell of a lot of work for uh, cookies now there because uh, the economic and financial policy advisor uh, has to prepare all these international summits like the G7, G20, all the international uh, financial policy changes, etc., And then, of course, the Europe advisor uh, who has to prepare all his European councils and the other EU business. So a lot of work there in the back for cookies. And yet another important appointment is uh, Jet Plötner, who will become uh, the foreign policy and security policy advisor for Scholz. And uh, that's a um, well-trained uh, career diplomat from the German foreign ministry and uh, who is now in this important role as foreign policy advisor. Yeah, very interesting. Let me, as we draw to a close, come to Florian Eder, our executive editor for Germany, who has a kind of unique dual vantage point, having also uh, written for several years our Brussels Playbook newsletter 
and as I say now in Germany as executive editor. So Florian, just um, perhaps uh, just to continue on the EU theme, uh, Hans touched on the issue of, of rule of law. What else kind of strikes you in terms of being top of the agenda or the big challenges on the EU front for this government, Florian? I'm wondering about the, the pressure that may come again to loosen the um, the fiscal rules, the Stability and Growth Pact. There we've heard Christian Lindner, the, the new finance minister, um, send some pretty strong signals that he's uh, that just is not a starter under him. Does that one strike you as something that could be a flashpoint? And where do you see the other uh, big areas that this government wants to make a mark on in Europe? Well, that is certainly one. Uh, there were huge expectations uh, and fear, actually, on the other hand, uh, in Southern Europe when it comes to the new and the composition of that new government and to the new finance minister. I had a lot of people asking me whether this would be the comeback of austerity if Christian Lindner becomes finance minister, which he is now. But you have also to see that uh, Olaf Scholz was a German finance minister before and there is uh, actually, you know, there are people who can see not much of a change, actually, in a German position towards these things. But yes, I do think that this is one of the big discussions that we are going to see uh, during the next months. Should Europe loosen the rules of the stability and growth pact, so the fiscal rules, or are they, even after the pandemic and the economic crisis after the pandemic, still a good fit? That is one thing. The other thing is the big European Green Deal and its implementation in different countries is, of course, a big challenge for, for everybody, where you will have all the debates and discussions about every country having its fair share in this and uh, and paying for uh, the transition, which is more costly in some countries than in others, and who's going to pay for that. And the third thing is, you know, with Europe, uh, with the French president pushing for a more assertive Europe on the international stage and uh, for strategic autonomy or however people call it, uh, there is, of course, a process ongoing of a repositioning of the European Union in geopolitics, to, to put it like that. And, of course, uh, a contribution from the new German government is uh, not only needed, but also badly expected. And I do think these will be things that will be discussed early on. We just had a confirmation of Olaf Scholz's office that his first trip on Friday will lead him to both Paris and then Brussels to see all these people. And I guess this will be some of the discussions that he'll have from day one, actually. Now, before we dive into Denglish, let's zoom out from Germany for a few minutes to look at the whole of Europe and explore a big moment on the political calendar, the unveiling of our annual Political 28 power list. And to explain a bit more about what the Political 28 is, I'm joined by Josh Posaner, our senior policy reporter. Hi, Josh. Hello, Andrew. You were given the task of compiling this list, which is uh, much watched across Europe. So maybe just start for people who don't know, tell us what the Political 28 is and also what it isn't. Exactly. Yeah. So I was the convener in chief, if you like, this year of all the, the list of 28 names. And we have to be very, very clear up front. It's not an award. This is a list of who we reckon as a newsroom and the most influential people that will be driving big decisions, big debates next year across Europe. Got it. So how did you go about actually uh, choosing the 28? Because uh, this is a newsroom where 
people are not short of strong views about who should be on lists and who shouldn't and where they should be. So, you know, you've got all of Europe to choose from. How did you go about narrowing it down? Yeah, you hit it right. Of course, everybody has an opinion on this kind of stuff, who has power, who's the most important person. We had a lot of conversations, both you and I, and also with all of our colleagues across the newsroom, dating back pretty much to the summer. And there's no real we're not using a methodology here where we're saying so-and-so was mentioned on Twitter this amount of million times. This is not what it's about. It's about plotting a educated guesstimate, if you like, of the people that really have the power in driving these decisions. But of course, we have a hundred journalists following all the most powerful people very closely, and therefore it's a very informed list. Right. And the list is actually made up of a series of sub-lists, if you like. So you broke them down into three categories. Maybe just explain what those three categories are, and then we'll see who was top in each list and then who was the overall number one. Mm-hmm. So there's an overall number one, as you say, that's the, the headline figure. Then we have three categories, nine people in each. There's the doer list, and those are generally the people with executive power to actually affect change. Mm-hmm. So prime ministers presidents, etc. Then there's the dreamers list. And those are the people really stirring debate with interesting ideas. There's some quite some interesting folk on that list this year. And then finally, you have the disruptors. They're the people really changing things, uh, using their position or their notional influence and power to really change the game in their respective field. Okay, so who was your number one doer? And I should say it's doer in the sense of people who do things, not doer in the Scottish sense <laughs> of people who are just very gloomy. And so exactly. Was, so that is, doer. it's really worked out perfectly because we are unveiling this list on Wednesday, the 8th of December. And Olaf Scholz will be sworn in by the Bundestag that day. And he is our number one doer. If you're a German chancellor, you have pretty hefty power baked in and you can't get around that. Mm-hmm. So he's the number one doer. And then let's do the other two. The uh, You have to remind me again, the dreamers and the... Disruptors. The disruptors. Okay. So we've got to go to Paris for our lead dreamer, but it's not who you might expect. We've gone for Anne Hidalgo. She's the mayor of Paris. And that's an interesting choice because her national campaign to run in the presidential election next year fell flat. Mm. However, we've selected her for the work she's done as Paris mayor, which is drastically reducing the amount of space allocated to cars in the city. That's a huge argument across Europe, not least here in Brussels, about slashing air pollution. And she's really pushing back against motorists and trying to make Paris a more livable, pollution-free city. Okay, so who's your number one disruptor? This was a much-discussed position on our list. In the end, we've gone for Donald Tusk. Okay, Donald Tusk, the former president of the European Council, Mm -hmm. former prime minister of Poland. So some people might say yesterday's man. So why have you gone for him? Because the argument is he's gone back to fight a very personal battle against the Peace government, against Kaczynski, against the regime in Poland that is pulling Poland further and further away from the rest of Europe. And while a poll exit remains unlikely, it's not impossible. And our big conversation within the newsroom was strategically, a Poland engaged in Europe makes Europe way more stronger than a Europe without Poland at the centre of it. So that's why Tusk is on the list. Okay, so you've got those three lists of nine each, and then there's an overall number one. So um, I don't know if we'll do the drum roll, but we might. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us who the number one is and why. Expecting fireworks as well. Our number one is Italy's Prime Minister Mario Draghi. Okay, and why? 
That's because we really feel that he has the opportunity, a little bit like Donald Tusk, to drag his country really into the heart of European affairs. And, and obviously, we know over the years, Italy has got through its prime ministers very, very quickly. I think mm. they're coming on for 10 in the last 20 years. But Mario Draghi, he's been in office for about 10 months already. He's still insanely popular. Mm. He has popularity rating, a trust rating of 65% amongst Italians, according to a recent survey. So you have the domestic program he's pushing ahead there, a classically technocratic program of economic reforms. Mm. But then you have the second layer to this, which is what role he will play within Europe. And on the one hand, Merkel is leaving, so you have a huge vacuum there. Mm. He can be that elder statesman, that go-to leader. Mm. Secondly, they're just about to disperse the recovery fund. Mm. And how that gets spent is a massively strategic question for the future of Europe. Right, and a big opportunity for Italy as well, which is getting the biggest share of that recovery money. And Mario Draghi, having been also president of the European Central Bank, is somebody who, who knows his way around Europe. And we've seen in recent days him sealing a treaty with Emmanuel Macron. It does feel like whether he remains as prime minister, there is some talk that he might go up to be the president of Italy. Either way, it does seem like he's someone who's going to leave his mark, if you like, for a second time. Mm. Uh, on Europe. That's your bet anyway. Precisely. And and we, you know, we accept that he could become president. We accept that things could move very quickly in mm. Italian politics and he might not play the decisive role we expect him to next year. However, at this stage, he has a really good opportunity to do that. Okay. Well, you can read the full Political 28 list online. It will be prominent on our website. There's also a live event, which I think will have taken place by the time people hear this, but I am sure they will be able to rewatch it. So we'll include a link to that as well. Uh, Josh, thanks very much. Thank you, Andrew. Right after this short message, we have a fun and also fascinating conversation with language critic Peter Littger about how English is changing the way Germans speak their own language. Stay with us. A message from Fuels Europe. Do you know what are low-carbon liquid fuels? Low-carbon liquid fuels are from non-petroleum origin and emit no or very limited additional CO2 during their production and use. The good news is that these low-carbon liquid fuels are already available on the market and can be used by all in every transport mode. Indeed, thanks to their unrivaled energy density, low-carbon liquid fuels are essential in aviation, maritime, heavy-duty and a share of light-duty transport. In these sectors, either alternatives will take longer to be deployed or specific vehicle uses and social considerations make it more difficult to shift to a different engine technology. Interested in knowing more? Visit our website cleanfuelsforall.eu Peter Litke is an author and a language critic who describes himself as the Denglish patient he suffers when Germans use what they think are English words or phrases, but really aren't. He's followed this phenomenon for years. English is an ingredient to our language that has interested me, but also in a way bothered me from very early on. And now he thinks things have reached new heights or depths, depending on your point of view. Something he explores in his latest book, Hello in the Round, Der Trouble mit unserem Englisch und wie man ihn schüttet. Litker says that for Germans, English has become a second mother tongue only without the mother. And he says all of this is reflected in politics and has political consequences. 
When you look into a sort of political party programs, when you look at how political parties in Germany communicate, of course, they don't speak English, but they use a lot of English jargon on the one hand, but also a lot of pseudo-English, you know, made up terms that people would not understand outside Germany. And I doubt that a lot of people in Germany actually understand it. Mm. I think one of the things I find most interesting is you're talking about what is kind of known as Denglish, this kind of mix of German and English. It kind of sounds English, but it would not be recognised as such often by a native speaker. And one of the things that you've focused on is how political parties are using this kind of language more and more. You even went to the trouble of going through, I think, all the party manifestos. Can you just give us some examples, some of your favourite examples of political denglish, maybe the most extreme ones that you came across? There's one that I found a bit funny that was in the FDP uh, manifesto called Top Sharing. And they derive it from Job Sharing and uh, make top sharing out of it uh, don't mean that you share your top, your dress, but that managers can do, um, you know, have a job sharing uh, scheme, something like that. Right. It's kind of job sharing for top people yes. and companies. But as you say, top sharing in English to native speakers, I do think is the kind of thing that if you did it at work would probably get you into trouble with HR. The FDP likes the gibberish very much. And they have in particular under Christian Lindner been promoting it uh, so far to an extent that I call them the Freie Denglische Partei instead of the Free Democrat. Right, the Free Denglish Party. Yes, that's, that's, that's the impression they give. Why do you think they and other parties are, are using English to this extent and also this particular type of English that doesn't actually make a lot of sense in either language? Mm -hmm. I think there are a couple of reasons, um, two um, possible main reasons. One in the case of the FDP is that they try to basically do some signaling in the sense that they want to come across as, you know, innovative, progressive, international, you know, a mindset. It's basically the signaling of a particular international mindset, the Anglo-Saxon mindset. In the case of FDP, I would call it signaling. In the case of the Green Party, that uses English a lot or English fragments a lot as well. I see another motif and see another reason, and that is that they are practicing policymaking language and, and jargon already quite a lot. Um, you find in the Green Party manifesto, and that is really striking, a lot of ING-ing terms. The list is really long. I have to just look at it. I mean, it starts, of course, with mm. recycling. Uh, okay. Okay. Then there is a pseudo-English term that all the parties use, um, is mobbing instead of bullying. Right or instead of yeah. harassing. Uh, but let's just stick mm -hmm. with the uh, ING. Uh, in, it's drug checking, diversity budgeting, mainstreaming, racial profiling, geek working, crowd working, gaming, roaming, mentoring. Just reading this wow. from the list. And um, as I said, it's um, more than 20 words. Racial profiling, housing first, boring banking, which is also... Boring banking, right? A double ing. A double ing. Uh, and, but also not... <laughs> and also the, yeah. the thing as such, the claim that uh, banks should focus on the original, or as they call it, the original... Um, kind of safer banking, right? Sort of bricks and mortar, retail banking. Absolutely. Saving stuff, institution right? sort of profile. Uh, yeah. No um, investment banking. Uh, so the merit uh, was going to say well, it should be the original, as they put it. And also the linker uses that. But they translate the boring, mm. by the way. In the linker for manifesto, you find uh, langweiliges banking. So they still use okay. the banking and don't use the boring. And so on and <laughs> so, so on. So they like the concept, but not yeah, the Yeah, game-based so learning. And, the and, and the greens don't translate it wow. in the manifesto. They just use those. Right, it's uh, just there. It's just yeah, exactly. just there, and this, yeah, and I guess that brings us on to the question: What you know, 
And some of this is kind of funny, to be honest, mm-hmm. at least for us. And for some of us who know German and English, mm-hmm. it can be quite amusing. But there are, I think, a couple of serious points, right, that you've identified some problems with this overuse of this kind of English or fake English jargon. What do you see as the main problems here from parties using so much of this kind of language? The obvious problem is the fact that um, 36 million Germans in a recent poll said that they think they have no relation or no good command of English. 36 million versus uh, 35 million who believe that their English is very good or at least fairly good. So I have detected what I call a language divide running across Germany. And that's pretty obvious. And the obvious problem for a political party is do I um, want to deter or do I want to attract voters? And the SPD, for example, that doesn't use as many anglicisms as the two aforementioned parties, Greens and FDP, is showing or shows to the reader of the manifesto that they are aware of the problem because they will translate a few, at least a few anglicisms. Yeah, Um, but as you say, it does feel like perhaps, and and I am surmising a bit here, that the people who don't feel so confident in English are the less educated generally. So I do wonder if it goes beyond a language divide, right? We talk a lot or people worry a lot about the gap between the political establishment and the population, particularly people who are the kind of left behind And it seems to me there is a danger by promoting this language, you kind of portray yourself as elite and highly educated, but that, you know, you're kind of turning off or making bigger the political divide. I see, of course, a bigger problem with those who are disenchanted at all, like don't show interest because they don't get it any longer. I mean, we have it in all kinds of fields, in particular, when you look at the collateral, if you like, uh, language damage Corona has caused, where a list of at least 20 words are English now and, and, and keywords of the debate. You know, we we say long COVID. We don't say die Nachweg, mm. Spätfolgen, or you, and you could easily translate it. We, we say physical distancing. We use Boostern of course and and then again it becomes Mm. a bit funny but that shows to everyone that the world is spinning fast and much faster than we can come up with German terms and we try to uh, also uh, be part of the international again jargon and the international language because it's an international problem and here um, people and you find it a lot also I find it a lot as a reaction to my columns people seem to be annoyed seem to be irritated in the English sense uh, and um, Mm. seem to also often have problems to understand what it is about, uh, what it really means. Right. I mean, that is an interesting question, isn't it? Because there is a, in a sense, we can say that the parties in some ways, aren't they really just reflecting the way the German language is going more generally? You just hear English much more. I mean, even I would say to like regular people, like I hear people saying, ich bin sehr happy, when there's nothing wrong with the word I, you know, by using the word froh, right, to mean happy. There's plenty of words in German for expressing happiness. And it's all over corporate literature. It's all over advertising. So in a sense, aren't the parties just going with the flow, just doing what's happening to the German language more generally, just reflecting that? Not judging here. I mean, I'm trying to describe it as much as I describe uh, the situation in German high streets, where basically every shop window is full of English promises, terms, and, you know, soft jargon. <laughs> I mean, marketing jargon is full of that. And as you say, happy and cool is, uh, has been around for decades. The thing is that now the um, what's called the Jugendsprache, the jargon of, of young people is full of English and uh, also my children form English sentences. They don't mm-hmm. say, das is sus. First of all, sus as, you know, the English term sus, sus, suspicious. But they say that's sus, that's sus. Or they say... Yeah, they just use the whole phrase. And get yeah, the TH right. 
that's sus, <laughs> or they say that's cringe. So uh, the logic of English is creeping into German, is forming a new kind of German, and here a hybrid language could emerge. I think that uh, a hybrid language skill is probably needed in the future, and that is something that um, politicians will have to think about. How can we enhance the ability and uh, the knowledge on a scale that everyone can take part in? And not just insiders. Mm. And that's a bit of a problem, I guess, that this uh, is currently a sort of insider language. This is something that we definitely don't need in an age of polarization where lots of people uh, lag behind. Mm. Well, I'm just trying to think if there could be a sort of Denglish uh, way to say thank you. You know, if we'd say, uh, you know, thank you nicely or thank you, Shun. Maybe that will become uh, the the new kind of way to say thank you in German, but uh, we'll say thanks in English. Uh, How thank about thanke? Thanke. Yeah. Maybe we point. can get thanke to catch on. Maybe we'll just start using it from now on. See if thank it spreads. <laughs> thanke to you too. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Remember that next Monday, December the 13th at 7pm Central European Time, we're having a virtual drinks get-together and you're invited. It's a chance for us, the podcast crew, to meet and talk with you, our listeners. So if you want to join us for that, don't be shy. Just send us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. Thanks to all of those of you who have sent in emails already. No need to send them again. Uh, But if you haven't got around to it yet, there's still a couple of days to do so. We'll get back to you with a Zoom link so that you can join us on Monday. We're looking forward to seeing some familiar faces as well as many new ones. And that's all for this week. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to Lucas Kotkamp and to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. And thanks to you for listening. <laughs>